So today we're going to talk about Adolf Reed's The Limits of Anti-Racism. I'm going to spend the next several podcast episodes talking about the work of Adolf Reed Jr. Uh, I found that his work was really insightful, analytical, super well thought out. His writings on identity politics and black politics are great, and I highly recommend it. And I was actually introduced to his work by Michael Brooks on The Michael Brooks Show. So I'm really glad I looked into him. Um, I'm currently going through Adolf Reed's book, Class Notes, and I really enjoy it so far. So I totally recommend him. Uh, I'm going to start with this article from him that I think it's uh, that I think it's very accessible. I think it's it's only like four pages, and I'm going to link the I'm going to link the article in the podcast description so you guys can check it out yourself. And the title of it is called "The Limits of Anti-Racism," and it was written in I believe 2009. Um, so I'm just going to talk about some relevant passages. And I'm going to share my thoughts of it. So let's get started. The fir- I'm going to start with the first couple lines from the beginning of the article. I'm just going to read it out to you. Anti-racism is a favorite concept of the American left these days. Of course, all good sorts want to be against racism. But what does the word exactly mean? The contemporary discourse of anti-racism is focused much more on taxonomy than politics. It emphasizes the name by which we should call some strains of inequality, whether they should be broadly recognized in evidence of racism, over-specifying the mechanisms that produce them, or even the steps that can be taken to combat them. So this is a really great point. Um, it gets right to the heart of the issue. We're so focused on taxonomy, you know, how we classify racism, what it is, how it encompasses our daily lives, and of course, this is this is fascinating, intriguing, and helpful. But we're so focused on this rather than actual concrete solutions that can be undertaken to combat the source of racism or the institutions that uh, perpetuate it. Now, Adolf Reed goes on to say that even though prior activism, uh, like the civil rights movement, was based on racial justice. It was tied to concrete objectives like voting rights, uh, fighting discrimination in housing and employment, and so on. And more so, in the first half of the 20th century, black intellectuals and other activists realized and acknowledged that racial justice couldn't be accomplished unless economic uh, unless economic inequalities were addressed too. And without challenging the economic system minorities and other disadvantaged groups would still be struggling. So this is what I was talking about in my podcast episode, It's All About Class. Uh, I talked about how we're essentially trapped in this continual continual discussion of this box of, of race and ascriptive identities. And, you know, we're always constantly discussing what's racist, definition of what is, setting those boundaries and so on, talking about like privilege and intersectionality and all that. And we're so caught up in these discussions that it leads to no, that it actually doesn't lead to any concrete action or or anything. There's no political program. There's no ties to 
grassroots organization or mobilization. There's no activism. There's no critique of capitalism, more importantly. And after the gains of the civil rights movement, you know, the, the 30 to 40 years after the civil rights movement, we've seemed to have stagnated in our quest for equality and justice. Now, Adolf Reed discusses that, discusses this part in in the article. You know, he talks about how there was anti-communism, anti-socialism, you know, destroying radicals that were, you know, considered a threat to the power structures, the leftists. Um, there was the absorption and rise of a new black political class that tried to that that became, you could say, the race managers who tried to set the agenda of what racial issues were and were not. And the decoupling of racial justice from economic justice. So before they were strongly linked and you really couldn't have racial justice without economic justice. But in the decades after the civil rights movement, we are now talking about these things as if they weren't related at all, as if there were two different subjects. Now, the last point is so important. Um, we're so used to saying how every sort of inequality today is racist or is caused by racism. We're using it in such an abstract, blanket way that it really prevents us or discourages us from looking at the structures that produce and reinforce inequality. Now, Adolf Reed uses the example of health disparities. Blacks and minorities often suffer from poor health outcomes compared to whites. And instead of correcting these inequalities by attacking America's you know, for-profit healthcare system, or capitalism itself, the blanket term of racism is just applied to the situation. And having this framework of using, uh, of having, you know, anti-racism as a means of accomplishing goals, it doesn't really specifically diagnose the problem or lead to any concrete political action. And when you really think about racism, it's it's like prejudice. It's It's an attitude. It's not something that you can like touch or see. It's not really like a material thing that you can grasp onto. And so the challenge of using this framework is you really have to, it's difficult to use this framework to build coalitions that could really unify the working class in order to make change happen. Now, an example that I like to use is the criminal justice system. We like to frame Things such as unfair bail practices, sentencing disparities, and the like as, you know, the criminal justice system is just racist. Now, of course, there are disparities. That's, I'm not arguing about that. You can just look at the numbers and outcomes. There's huge discrepancy, you know, in terms of like uh, per capita offenses, you know, by race, uh, the who are, who's being locked up who's held in pretrial detention and so on. Of course, there's disparities. But I don't think, you know, Reed would say that just because there are disparities, it doesn't mean that there's a that there's a racial, that there's a racist element in them. So we have to obviously look at other factors as well. Now, Adolf Reed acknowledges that racism exists. And he quotes that, yes, racism exists as a conceptual condensation of practices and ideas that reproduce or seek to reproduce 
hierarchy along lines defined by race, end quote. However, he also says, as the basis for social interpretation, and particularly interpretation directed towards strategic political action, they are useless. Their principal function is to feel good and tastely righteous in the mouths of those who propound them. So like, in other words, um, rhetoric about racial injustice is good for inspiring and motivating others or, you know, bringing attention to an issue, but that alone isn't a useful model or useful as a basis towards strategic political action. Now, I think the next point Reed brings up is key to understanding what's so broken about capitalism and the neoliberal neoliberal order that we're currently in. It's actually in the last couple paragraphs, but I've combined them because I thought they were relevant and connected. So Reed states, We live under a regime now that is capable simultaneously of including black people and Latinos, even celebrating their inclusion as a fulfillment of democracy, while excluding poor people without a whimper of opposition. Of course, those most visible in the excluded class are disproportionately black and Latino, and that fact gives the lie to the celebration. Or does it really? From the standpoint of the neoliberal ideal of equality, in which classification by race, gender, sexual orientation, or any other recognized ascriptive status, that is, status based on what one allegedly is rather than what one does, does not impose explicit, intrinsic, or necessary limitation on one's participation and aspirations in the society. This celebration of inclusion, uh, this celebration uh, of inclusion of blacks, Latinos, and others is warranted. And he continues, but this notion of democracy is inadequate, since it doesn't begin since it doesn't begin to address the deep and deepening patterns of inequality and injustice embedded in the ostensibly neutral dynamics of American capitalism. What A. Philip Randolph and others, even anti-communists like Roy Wilkins, understood in the 1940s is that what racism meant was that. So long as such dynamics existed without challenge, black people and other similarly stigmatized populations would be clustered on the bad side of the distribution of costs and benefits. To extrapolate anachronistically to the present, they would have understood that the struggle against racial health disparities, for example, has no real chance of success apart from a struggle to eliminate for-profit health care. I'm increasingly convinced that a likely reason is that the race line it Race line is itself a class line, one that is entirely consistent with the neoliberal definition of equality and democracy. It reflects the social position of those positioned to benefit from the view that the market is a just, effective, or even acceptable system for rewarding talent and virtue and punishing those, punishing their opposites and that, therefore, removal of artificial impediments to its functioning like race and gender will make it even more if will make it more if will make it even more efficient and just end quote okay that was a mouthful i left out some parts because i think this sums up perfectly what's wrong with identity politics and the use of race or any other ascriptive identity as a framework for justice 
I am actually reminded of an incident I read in uh, Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal, which is a really great book that I think that I recommend everyone read if you want to know why uh, we have Donald Trump and what happened with the Democratic Party. But anyways, um, there was an incident that was uh, described in Listen Liberal by Thomas Frank that um, there was a so there was a room full of entre- entrepreneurial women of the world celebrating their accomplishments along and Hillary Clinton was there also. And yet, especially for those women who, you know, came from third world countries, there were no poor or working class women being celebrated. Still, average working women were nowhere to be found. It was just a room of very, you know, first world and third world women by the same, but they were all entrepreneurial. They were all successful and wealthy. And all these successful women were being lauded as wonderful, virtuous, uh, stewards of the world, of the economy, of their countries, and so on. And there was just no working class representation. Where was the, you know, there was nothing about the common man or the common woman. It was just applauding all these elite, elite individuals. There was also a recent example, maybe like a couple years ago. Um, Maybe, I guess that's not that recent, but so Gina Haspel when she became the CIA director, the press and the pundits, they, you know, praised her to the skies of how wonderfully diverse it was and how the glass was uh, shattered because she was a woman and she became, you know, finally became the director of the CIA and how wonderful that was. But think about this. This is the damn CIA. The organization that tortures individuals, sponsors coups against democratically elected governments, performs assassinations and the like. It's not about who you are, but what you do. Okay, well, that was an example from like, what, two years ago, one year ago? Let's do an even more recent example. Let's do Kamala Harris, um, who is a United States senator who's running for uh, the presidency. Earlier in this year, she was posturing as a progressive prosecutor, as a voice for black Americans, exalting her parents' role in the civil rights era, um, and how she was a victim of racism as a child, and how she couldn't play with children who were of different races. And, you know, she also went on The Breakfast Club and tried to posture herself as an authentic black individual. Now, yet she was a, uh, she had a problematic past. She was at the helm of a criminal justice system that prosecuted individuals for smoking weed, wasn't fighting for police to equip body cameras, and those were just a couple of examples. So her her policies didn't actually benefit black individuals at all, and yet she was here trying to posture herself as an authentic black voice. So this kind of falls into that notion of of anti-racism without really looking into what that person does, what their values are, what their policy, what their politics are. Um, it's just, as long as it's diverse, it must be good. So, on one hand, we're celebrating individuals who come from disadvantaged groups, who ascend to high positions of power, wealth, or influence, and at the same time, we're completely ignoring these individuals' policies, uh, what they have done, what they stand for, 
and you know it's ironically the people who make up the most disadvantaged communities are uh, minorities like black and brown people poor people so it's completely absurd that you know on one hand we're celebrating like oh my god these people have ascended positions of power they're you know we have a diverse ceo or a workforce and yet issues of like inequality of imperialism of a broken healthcare system these aren't the things that we're focusing on the things that that affect the majority of working class americans and it's a it's a strain of thought that really i think like adolf reed says later on it really just benefits those individuals who already have those resources and skills to to be at the top so i'm completely it's completely absurd and i'm surprised well maybe i'm not that surprised given the immense conditioning and the pervasiveness of this framework in our politics that so few have noticed this irony the next point i think is really poignant as well I will I'll repeat it. It reads, But this notion of democracy is inadequate, since it doesn't begin to address the deep and deepening patterns of inequality and injustice embedded in the ostensibly neutral dynamics of American capitalism. The whole idea of identity politics is not conducive to challenging our capitalist order and its pervasive inequality, unfairness, and injustice. I'll throw in Reed's last point because it's highly connected as well. Quote, I'm increasingly convinced that a likely reason is that the race line is itself a class line, one that is entirely consistent with the neoliberal redefinition of equality and democracy. It reflects the social position of those positioned to benefit from the view that the market is just, effective, or even acceptable system for rewarding talent and virtue and punishing their opposites and that, therefore, removal of artificial impediments to its functioning, like race and gender, will will make it even more efficient and just. So using identity as a vehicle or framework for achieving justice and equality isn't helpful in changing the material conditions or helping the lives of working-class Americans. One of the few concrete proposals of people who subscribe to this framework is the dis- is the advancement of minorities to the upper echelons of management and professional life. Now, this isn't to say that I'm against the advancement of disadvantaged populations. That would be completely absurd. Of you know, if you look at the civil rights movement, one of the main objectives of it was to end the end the legal discrimination of minorities in housing and in the workplace. But after the gains of that area, of that era, we have the framework of identity that coincides perfectly with the neoliberal turn of the century. The problem that I see is that you know this framework presumes that the system is fair and that disadvantaged peoples are groveling at the powers that be for acceptance, tolerance, and inclusion into the power structure. And when they are accepted, like Barack Obama or Oprah Winfrey or Gina Haspel or Hillary Clinton and so on, we applaud them and say how they broke barriers. Oh my God, golly gee, just just give us a chance, good sir. Just give us a chance. The system is fine. Just as long as we get a piece of that pie, we'll shut up. 
there is a complete lack of criticism of the power structure and the economic system that produced these inequalities in the first place. You know, you know, I'll bring back the pie analogy. As long as we get our slice of pie, we'll be quiet and we won't bother you. There's, well, there's no discussion of who made that pie in the first place, why it was divided in such a fashion in the first place. No, Adolf Reed, he likes to use the example of a photograph. It matters not if 1% of the population owns 90% of the wealth, as long as the picture is in color. So in other words, it doesn't matter what the structure of power is, but how it looks or its composition. Now, in my view, this framework of anti-racism and identity politics not only is unhelpful in building a strong political movement that brings the working class together, but it de-emphasizes the collective action needed to tackle the very strongly entrenched interest groups, the wealthy and the powerful, that controls our political and economic life. It's not a framework that is useful for transforming our economic system, but is one that perfectly meshes within it. Now, I'll end by saying this. Most of the time, I find that people who subscribe to this liberal identity politics ideology to have political programs of very low stakes. The common theme is the push for the advancement of women, gay, black and brown, trans individuals in, in tech or other professional or managerial roles. The celebration of very token acts of resistance and endless discussions about white privilege, intersectionality, diversity, coming to grips with your identity and whatnot. These are all fascinating, stimulating topics. But they are not and should not be a framework or a vehicle for mobilizing and formulating a mass movement that seeks to transform the world into a more just and egalitarian society. Without critique of our economic system and the structures that produce and reinforce inequality, will be, as I alluded to in my podcast episode, trapped in this box of discourse that works well within the abstract mind, but not for altering or reshaping the material conditions of the poor and the working class.